This episode of Thinking Through Autonomy is in partnership with the Eno Center for Transportation. Eno is an independent nonprofit think tank focused on transportation. As an organization, Eno shapes public debate on critical multimodal transportation issues and builds an innovative network of transportation professionals. Eno's Aviation Working Group is a standing advisory group on all matters related to aviation policy. In their latest report, Bridging the Gap, Sustaining UAS Progress While Pursuing a Permanent Regulatory Framework will inform today's discussion. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, Managing Partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. We're kicking off the podcast with Paul Lewis, Vice President Policy and Finance from the Eno Center for Transportation, which is our partner in these episodes. Paul's a multimodal expert in transportation technology, pricing, and economic development. He's on the advisory board for Carnegie Mellon's Future of Work program and named one of Mass Transit Magazine's top 40 under 40 in 2016. We'll be leveraging Paul's and the Eno Center's perspective that spans across transportation sectors. In this segment, we'll focus on comparing and contrasting the challenges faced by this nascent unmanned industry against similar ones that might have been faced by other sectors as they developed. Paul, welcome. Glad to be here, Ken. Thank you. Paul, I want to start out talking about the Eno Center. I want to start by saying happy birthday. You're about to turn 100 years old. And I am wondering, what is behind the secret sauce to the Eno Center for Transportation's longevity? Yeah, that's true. We're very excited. Next year, 2021, is our 100th year as an organization. And we've been looking at challenging transportation issues for the past 100 years. And, you know, there's a couple things that are are really important to our success. And one is that um, we have a tremendous amount of folks that are involved um, externally. And, uh, you know, whether it's in aviation or freight or surface transportation, our external stakeholders are crucial to making sure that we are uh, developing the kind of things that are, are important to transportation and the transportation industry. Um, the other thing is that we don't look back too often. We're always kind of focused on what's next. And this is I think part and parcel to um, you know our, our aviation work and uh, looking at UAS, um, making sure we're looking to the forward or looking forward to uh, make sure that we're um, being most relevant. There will probably be some listeners who are not familiar with the Eno Center, yet I'm sure that they've used technology that William Phelps Eno developed and they don't know it. So the way I understand it, we have this phrase called "rules of the road." Everybody uses it today, but that was developed by William Phelps Eno for the state of New York in 1909. Can you tell us a little bit about the Eno Center's founder and his role in transportation? Yeah, the, you know, the, the history goes back long before that. In fact, when, he, when William Eno was a young man, he was caught in a horse and buggy traffic jam in Manhattan. Um, and he was so traumatized by that event. He he dedicated his life and, and a good portion of his father's money to uh, overcoming problems in traffic, specifically that then grew out into broader transportation problems. 
But one of those was writing the first rules of the road. Before uh, William Eno, there were no rules. It was kind of just general norms. Um, but with the introduction of the automobile and, and growing traffic congestion, there needed to be a codified way on how we use that public space to move vehicles. And so he's credited with uh, inventing the traffic circle and the stop sign uh, and other traffic control devices along with um, the, the specific rules of the road that have evolved certainly over the past hundred years, but, but by and large remain uh, based on his uh, first principles. So Paul, if we look forward a hundred years, can you tell us a little bit more about what Eno's research portfolio looks like today? Yeah, so when we were focused in the beginning on, on traffic and traffic control, we've now expanded to be totally multimodal. So we look at everything from uh, aviation to freight to uh, cars and trucks and, and buses and trains, um, all the way down to walking and scooters and bikes and, and everything in between. Um, and, and within that, we're focused on public policy outcomes. Um, whether that be at the local, the federal, or the state level of government. Um, and so we involve our partners across the board uh, and across the industry to make sure that we're coming up with independent, nonpartisan, and, and really pragmatic policy solutions to today's most challenging uh, problems. And as I understand it, a significant portion of this work is done through your working groups. Can you share with us a little bit about what a working group is, what it does, and who are on these working groups? Yeah, so we developed a bunch of different uh, groups based on either modal or, or subject matter interest. And so we have a working group that's looking at digital cities, and one that's looking at freight, one that's looking at uh, transportation finance, and, uh, and one that's looking at aviation. And, and our aviation working group is one of our oldest and, and most active groups. Uh, that involves folks from across the spectrum, um, whether it's uh, manufacturers or airports, airlines, uh, pilots unions, air traffic controllers. Uh, we try to involve a bunch of different stakeholders within that community, and they serve as an advisory board to help us shape the areas where we want to go with our policy, and then help advise us on how to make those policies uh, so that they are useful and uh, practical in today's uh, policymaking environment. Sure. Now, traditionally, I, I understand that the Aviation Working Group focused on issues related to manned aircraft and air traffic control. But now your working group is focused on unmanned vehicles. And I'm just wondering where UAS fits within ENO's broader mission. So... The Aviation Working Group has uh, looked at a bunch of different issues over the past decade. We started out looking at air traffic control reform. We've also done some work on certification, on airport privatization, on congestion in and around airports. Um, and about two years ago, some of the key members of the working group came to us and said, hey, we really think that there's a role that ENO can play in the complex policy issues that surround UAS both on making sure that they are safe, the actual physical craft, and then creating a system to make sure that those aircraft can fly safely once they're in the air in a very integrated type airspace. Uh, and so that was a big issue. It was something that was forward-looking. Um, and it's an area where we haven't defined and, and finished what that public policy looks like. And given that it's a new topic, 
the aviation working group is very excited to kind of shift and really focus on that future, um, given that it's growing so quickly and there are so many uh, undecided factors when it comes to how that uh, those UAS systems are going to be regulated and incorporated into the broader aircraft system. As I mentioned at the introduction of this segment, William Phelps Eno wrote the rules for the road for cars and buggies. And when you look at the unmanned world, UAVs, or maybe some people call them drones, where are we in terms of writing those rules for the road, for the construction of drones, for the operation of unmanned vehicles, and even integrating unmanned vehicles into the same airspace that business aircraft fly, general aviation flies, and even commercial aircraft fly? It's an interesting question because in some respects, we're totally at a nascent phase where we haven't written the rules at all. And in other respects, there are a tremendous amount of rules already written for manned aviation that can very easily be applied to UAS without necessarily upending the whole paradigm. Um, the challenge that we have is sifting through those differences and similarities to create a new system for those aircraft um, that both encourages innovation, right, which is what UAS are really all about, um, but also maintains the incredible safety that the system has. And so that's what the policy really has to balance. Um, and I think it's been really important, and this is something the group has certainly done over the last two years, is, is try to look at existing examples, not just from aviation, but from other modes, to see what has worked and what hasn't, and seeing if we can apply some of those same structures to the UAS world, um, in part not to necessarily rewrite the entire uh, federal code, um, but also to make sure that, that we're learning from the good examples and, and frankly, learning lessons learned from, from past failures. As you look across transportation, whether it's technologies, whether it's new procedures, whether it's the integration of various modes of technology, do you see any kind of examples where there's either a one-to-one -one correlation between what we're seeing now with UAS or maybe something that we can say it's closely similar to those challenges? Because I think often there's a presumption that when you talk about unmanned aircraft that this is a new technology, there never were any rules written for it. Uh, this is a brand new industry, and we have to start from the basics. You, you talked a little bit about this before, but what industries could you point to? Yeah, so I think that the industries that, that we can point to, um, of course, are in aviation. Uh, there's, there's a lot. Aviation tends to reinvent itself every once in a while because there's so much technology involved, um, but the basis of it still, uh, still remains very applicable. Um, also, self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles is, a, is another paradigm. Um, I think that um, AVs, uh, road AVs, are not nearly as ad advanced as UASs in many respects. Um, and so, I, But I think that those two industries um, and those two applications have a lot to learn from each other in terms of developing smart policies. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, that learning from um, other other types of uh, regulations and other you know, regulatory regimes for modes is going to be crucial um, in developing smart policies for UAS in the future. Back on August 25th, you released your report that was entitled 
sustaining UAS progress while pursuing a permanent regulatory framework. And the report mentions gaps. And certainly there are gaps between what an unmanned aircraft can do versus what it's allowed to do today. And I'm just wondering, is that an adequate way of discussing this gap? Are there other gaps? Or why do you think there is this gulf between what it can do and what we'll allow it to do? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there, there certainly is a gap on the technology part. Um, you know, if you look at different applications, different people, different things that people have dreamed up for UAS to eventually do one day, uh, the technology isn't quite there yet. It's still under development. It's still not, not quite hitting the targets that the private sector has set for it. Um, but on the policy side and you know, on the, pu the public sector side, um, there are certain gaps in the policy regime. And I think that both have to work in concert. So as the technology develops, we might not need specific regulations right now, but when those technologies do hit the road, uh, or when those technologies do hit the sky, let me, let me correct myself there, um, they, they need to operate in a re regulatory regime that is uh, both enabling and also ensuring that kind of safety. Um, and those kind of things don't happen overnight. Um, we know the trajectory for the technology. We know that some of it's still a few years away. We need to make sure that we are addressing the gaps on the policy side too, so that when those do uh, are when those are released commercially, um, we're not kind of fighting and playing catch up on the regulatory side, um, and can enable that stuff to happen rather quickly. Your body of research spans. Part 107, which we know is the basic regulations for unmanned aircraft, all the way through aircraft certification, which allows the vehicles to essentially fly with a, a level of airworthiness that is certified by the FAA. And I'm wondering, as you did this research and you produced the report, what, what things are you most surprised about that you found? And maybe are there things that you didn't find that you were surprised you you didn't notice in the data you collected. Well, that's you know that that's an interesting question, and and I think that our host is being a little modest here, right? Because you can help author the report, and this has been an area uh, for your expertise um, for a while. And uh, you know, I think you and I, when we were putting this together, we were surprised by a couple things, um, and we were also not surprised by a couple things, but. You know, some of the data was really enlightening in terms of um, the different types of uses, the the um, the shifts from uh, the two to part 107 is kind of the go-to for um, commercial drone applications. Um, but you know, I, I think that there's there's a lot to to dig out of the report. I'm actually going to pitch the question back to you, Ken. I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on the, on the surprises and and those uh, those aspects, given that that you were a co-author with me and, and one who did a huge portion of the work. So I see you're gonna put the host in the hot seat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So I'll tell you the one thing that completely surprises me and will surprise me for probably the next 10 years every time I think back on the work that we did, and it's this. Going into this report, we understood that there are challenges. We understood that there were areas of concern. We understood that there were gaps. And yet, when we went out to the broader unmanned community, 
and we try to solicit feedback on identification of these gaps, identification of the specific things that stakeholders found in the certification process, there was a great deal of reluctance to supply that kind of information to us. You know, somebody could say, um, well, hey, this is survey fatigue. People just don't want to talk to people. We had a suggestion that maybe people think that these obstacles can't be overcome and doing additional research, pointing these obstacles out won't change anything. And we really had to work really hard to pull these ideas out of data, to pull the ideas out of people. And I think going into this, Paul, I thought it was going to be a whole lot easier in practice than what it turned out to be in reality. Well, I mean, do you think that's fair? Yeah, that's definitely fair. And and you know the other thing that that um, you just reminded me of is that when we were writing up the the conclusions and the recommendations, you know, a lot of it was outlining what the future of of this work is going to look like. Right? There's there were so many unanswered questions. There were so many things that that we came across that that really made us realize we have a lot of work to do. Um, it's going to be really foundational in informing the next stage of research that. Eno and the aviation working group are, are going to embark on. So that's that to me is very exciting. And do you think we can preview some of those future research areas that we found needing more definition out of the original report we wrote? Yeah. So Ken, you and I spent a lot of time talking to folks uh, in the industry and on the working group and outside of it about based on this research, kind of what's next. And a couple areas became very clear. I thought you know one was um, looking at this, the safety component a little bit more in depth. You know, what does it take to create a safety culture within the UAS industry? Um, I think that that's kind of something that, that really rang true with a lot of people, um, making sure we bring not just the, the standards, but the, the culture, the mentality, the approach to safety um, from, from the bottom up, from the users to the manufacturers all the way up to the, to the regulators, to make sure that this is something that uh, does not so that safety is not something that stalls this industry uh, in the future. Um, there's also, I think, a need for um, some structures for for groups like law enforcement. Um, how do we control uh, these UAS in the airspace, and who has responsibility? Right now, the Federal Aviation Administration controls everything in the air that's from the tips of the grass up to the edge of space. And if a law enforcement official needs to take down or, or deal with some kind of drone, they don't necessarily have the authority to do so. Uh, and so what does a new paradigm for local law enforcement look like? Um, that's a big question. We also talked to folks about um, UTM, our, our UAS traffic management systems. There are a ton of different proposals out there. There's a bunch of different technologies on which those are based, but there's not a consensus as to which one should be the appropriate one moving forward. And what does that look like? Who pays for it? How does it operate? Um, those are big questions that I think that this group uh, and Eno can tackle in the next couple years, and certainly something we want to, to stay involved in. Can is, is there anything that I'm missing there? Do you did you feel like in doing this research there were other areas that that we could and should focus on? So that's the million dollar question because I do think that there's one area of research that 
needs to be talked about and it needs to be supported by analysis and good data. And that's what do you do with drones and unmanned aircraft that appear in places and in situations where you don't want them to be? That's, I guess, what we call the rogue drone problem. And, you know, I do think that everyone has an opinion on it, yet the body of research behind countering drones is very, very small. And I think we need to look at that at some point. That's a great point. So, Paul, I think you have just outlined another 100 years of work for the Eno Center for Transportation. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for your, your participation in the first part of this episode today. We'll be turning things over now to a discussion with various members of the Aviation Working Group for a discussion of their experience with UAS and a description of the challenges they're facing with their work. podcast is edited by Piper Creative. Piper works with startups, Fortune 500 companies, and everyone in between to produce podcasts, YouTube videos, and compelling digital media. Learn more at pipercreative.co.